I don't know how husbands in the past did it. Admittedly, grocery stores didn't used to have quite as many choices and options as they have today. But nevertheless, I, I don't know how when they were sent to the grocery store with a honeydew list with a, a few things to pick up, how they knew to grab what their wives needed. Nowadays, you go into any aisle in any grocery store and the options are paralyzing, overwhelming. And so I, I lack no confidence in, in being assured that I'm going to get the right brand, the right style, the right size of what my wife needs. And so I'm so appreciative to have something like a phone to be able to snap a picture, to send it to her and confirm that I actually have the item that she needs. Today we rest easy that when it comes to our understanding of who God is, and more importantly, our Savior, there is no doubt that has been left up. It's not up in the air as to whether Jesus is or is not the Savior that we need. And on top of that mountain, on that day in front of those disciples, God made it clear that Jesus is, in fact, the Savior that is needed. Mark describes what those three disciples, Peter, James, and John, saw on top of that mountain when he describes very simply yet powerfully, there he, Jesus, was transfigured before them in a way that defied any sort of natural explanation. This was a glimpse of the divine glory that they witnessed with their own eyes, defying any natural explanation. This was supernatural. This was a divine glimpse of glory, not something that any other human being could reveal. And then the father gives his stamp of approval as well, voicing his love for his son on top of that mountain. We're told, as Mark records it in verse 7, Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. The father was, again, validating, was approving of Jesus as not only the one he loved, but, but his son and therefore the Savior that is needed. Those words that the Father spoke on that mountain might sound familiar to, to some of us because we just visited them uh, not a few Sundays ago in our Bounce Back series looking at Jesus' baptism. Almost word for word, the Father spoke the same words at Jesus' baptism that we hear on this Mount of Transfiguration some three years nearly later. The God that, that we know and love expressed His love and His affirmation in the Son. Jesus, our Savior. So both at the beginning of Jesus' ministry and then at the end of his ministry, as if serving uh, as, as two bookends in Jesus' ministry to validate and give us the assurance that he is, in fact, the Savior that we need. Last Sunday and this Sunday, we've been focusing on that simple concept of distinguishing wants from needs and realizing how important that is because it colors the way that we understand our relationship with Jesus. Is he the Savior that we want or need? Jesus didn't come to this earth. Jesus didn't come simply to, to merely provide what we, we want and, and diminish his work to, to being something so trivial or so menial. See, Jesus wasn't concerned and isn't concerned first and foremost with our, our temporal, worldly happiness, but rather with our eternal, heavenly joy. 
That is what he came to provide. And so what that means is that he is not concerned first and foremost with, with satisfying our happiness. And by extent, that means that his greatest concern, of the thing that is highest on the top of his to-do list, is not making sure that we find the perfect mate or the ideal job or that we have hit full stride in our health. Those things are the not at the top of our Savior's to-do list until we are at the top, or, or rather he is at the top of our to-do list. He wants to make sure that we have seen him as the Savior that we truly need. We said it last Sunday, and, and I think it bears repeating, that important reminder of what happens when we, when we misprioritize our happiness and Jesus. If we pursue happiness first and Jesus second, we get neither. But when we place Jesus first and happiness second, we get both. If once are tied to our happiness, then we are chasing after the wrong thing. And maybe what we should reflect on is that the reason that we, we seem to be so unhappy in life isn't because we don't have those things that we think will make us happy, but much more likely because we're looking to the wrong things to make us happy in the first place. Jesus alone can provide that need. And so Jesus is the Savior that we need. Even that phrase, that concept, when we talk about being the Savior that we need, really has two different ways to understand it. On the one, it forces us to ask, is, does Jesus fit what is needed? Is he the right one? But the other way to look at that is, is also then to reflect on, do we actually realize that we need him as our Savior? Is Jesus the one that we need, the Savior that we need? Absolutely. No one else could fit everything that was necessary to fill the role of our Savior, to be both God and man, the Son of God, the Son of Man, born of Mary and yet conceived by the Holy Ghost as we confess. The, the, the true man, because he had to be under God's law, God, because he had to keep that law perfectly. True man so that he could die. God, so that his death could count for all of us. And not only that, but, but he had to demonstrate that, that he wasn't going to let death have the last word. That by his resurrection, he would overcome the devil and even death itself. And furthermore, that, that he had to fulfill every detail, every minute detail of, of every prophetic foretelling and foreshadowing of who Jesus would be. And only Jesus fits that description and meets all that criteria. Jesus is the Savior that we need. But then do we recognize how much we need him as our Savior? Well, of course you would say yes. Yes, Jesus is the Savior I need. Well, let me ask a, a little bit more. Why? Why is Jesus the Savior that you need? Well, because, because I am a sinner and, and I need forgiveness, and so Jesus provides that forgiveness, and I know as a sinner that I, I need that forgiveness. And that's true, and, and that's well and good, but I'm not asking why you, general, as a, as a group, whether I'm preaching on a Sunday morning or a group of people watching it or any given time, but rather you as an individual, why do you need Jesus? You say, well, I'm a sinner. But what sin have you committed that needs Jesus for your forgiveness? 
not collectively, this idea that, yes, we're, we're sinners and so we gather each week or we watch a video that reminds us, yes, I'm a sinner and I'm a forgiven sinner, all well and good, let's go out this week and come back next weekend and hear the same basic message and nothing really changes. But why do you need Jesus as your Savior? What sin have you sinned? Oh, well, we don't go there, Pastor. We don't get specific. We don't get detailed when it comes to sin. We're, we're playing it safe just by being general about sin and realizing that, that we all are general sinners and Jesus came for sinners. But once we get personal, once we get specific about sin, then, then well, Pastor, you just might make somebody feel guilty. And that is the cardinal sin of our day and age, isn't it? To make somebody else feel guilty. It's the one thing that we are not permitted to do. And, and what has blurred the lines of, of this idea of guilt as well is that we do have very real things like shaming and, and bullying. And they're reprehensible in certain contexts when they're carried out. But the danger that those have brought about is that we have used those terms interchangeably with guilt. So that guilt becomes somebody else's fault. If I feel guilty, it's your fault for making me feel guilty. It's somebody else's fault for pointing out something that made me feel bad. And so we don't even realize it, but because we've used that term interchangeably and we've placed the burden of guilt on the other person, the accuser, and not ourselves, we have basically freed ourselves from ever feeling guilt. But have you stopped to realize that no one else can really make you feel guilty? At least not in the, the godly sense of guilt that brings about repentance. No one else makes you feel guilty by what they say or, day, say or, or do. Guilt is something that we feel as a result of somebody else pointing out something wrong that we have done or right that we have failed to do on the basis of God's word. And so when somebody does that, when somebody points out to me that I've done something wrong or that I failed to do the right thing and I feel guilty as a response, good. Thank God that you do. That's exactly what the law is supposed to do. It's supposed to accuse us. It's supposed to convict us. It's supposed to condemn us. So when you feel guilty because somebody has pointed out your sin, thank God that you do. That we might pray for repentance because only then do we realize when that guilt weighs on us that sin is something that is serious and not to be trifled with. That's when I feel guilty and realize that my sin is real. It's real sin committed against a real, holy, righteous God who really has the authority and the power to send me and condemn me to a real hell for my sin. Sin is not just some whoopsie or some accident to be made light of. It's real. It's damning. And so guilt is good when it makes me aware of that sin. But if we, if we diminish guilt or, or we try to guard and protect ourselves the way that society, and not just society, but increasingly even voices in the church, that we try to, to make guilt as this, this experience that nobody should have to go through, this traumatic experience that nobody should ever have to endure, and we make so little of sin and guard ourselves against guilt, then I have to ask, where does that leave 
grace. Because if, if sin isn't real and the consequences of it aren't real and hell isn't real, then why do we need real grace? Grace might as well be some made-up mythical thing like a, a unicorn or a Bigfoot that is fun and fantastic to think about but is, has no basis in reality. But if guilt and sin and hell are real, then grace better be real too because it is the only hope I have to bail me out from hell. So on top of that mount of transfiguration, God, as he spoke approval through his Son, showed us that Jesus, that our Savior, that his Son is real. And if he's real, then so is grace. The grace that Jesus came to bring and the guilt that we feel collided in Peter's response on top of that mountain. You recognize that he, he felt the terror of his guilt in the presence of a, a holy Jesus. That's the only explanation that could, could help him understand what he was seeing. And yet, he knew that, that Jesus was, was the Savior, was the one who came to bring grace. And that helps us understand this seeming paradox or contradiction in his response in verse 5 and 6. Mark tells us, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. He was terrified, but he didn't want it to end. That's what guilt is in the presence of a holy God. It terrifies us. He knew that Jesus was his judge. We know that Jesus is our judge, and that's terrifying, but we know that Jesus, our judge, judges on the basis using the standard of grace. And so there is that paradox that when our sin accuses us and guilt weighs heavily on us, we don't want to be anywhere near Jesus, yet we know that we need to be right near Jesus. That we want to be as close to him as possible because he is the one that bails us out with his grace, with his undeserved love. And Jesus made that that's certain for us on top of that Mount of Transfiguration. God wanted his disciples and us today to come away from that experience with a confidence that because Jesus, his son, is real, we can be sure that grace and forgiveness with it are also very real. And Mark kind of provides for us a little bit of what we might call bonus material on the tail end of this section of the transfiguration. It's not the event itself, but it's, it's what Jesus says as he's departing, as he's going down the mountain with his disciples. And he explains to them that there would be a time and a place for them to tell, to share with others what they had seen on the mountain. But he explains it. He qualifies when that time would come. And he says, don't say anything until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And so right there again, Jesus makes clear for his disciples and you and me, grace is real. Death won't have the last word. And how important knowing what was coming up very soon as Jesus' disciples would see him, would witness him suffering and crucified, to be assured and have that promise that Jesus just made that he would rise from the dead. And he wasn't just saying this could probably happen or it's a conditional if A, B, and C happens, then he'll rise or that it might happen. He's telling them there would be a time and a place for you to share what you saw on this mountain after I rise from the dead. And what Jesus predicted 
we have the blessing of history on our side to know that he carried out. No, today is not yet Easter. That will come at the end of, of the season of Lent as we, we build up to that glorious day. But every Sunday is a, a mini Easter. Even during the season of Lent, we, we have these little pockets of joy and reminders that Sunday, that is the day of the week that Jesus rose from the dead. And if he rose from the dead, then that means God was satisfied with his payment for our sin. And that means that God can truly declare us not guilty because the punishment for sin has been paid. Jesus predicted his resurrection to his disciples on the way down from that mountain, and then he carried that very prediction out. He rose from the dead and assures us of a res resurrection from the dead as well. Not always so easy to distinguish a want from a need. It wasn't always easy for the disciples either. And yet, Jesus showed them again and again that he was the Savior that they needed. Now maybe, uh, kind of a, a side note, maybe you wonder, you've, you've struggled with why Jesus actually told his disciples to keep mum to not share this experience until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Well, if you, if you look at the rest of Mark and the rest of the disciples' behavior leading up to Jesus' crucifixion, you see time and again, they demonstrate that Jesus made the right call on telling them not to bother trying to explain it because they showed how flawed and how failed they were and, and how their own understanding of Jesus as their Savior and his resurrection and how that all fit together, they didn't totally grasp it yet. Jesus would again predict to them that, that he would suffer, die, and rise, and they were confused. They still wouldn't know what he was talking about in the next chapter. And then we see the disciples fighting over each other, arguing about who is the greatest. And then, of course, there is, there is deception, there's denial, there's betrayal, all of these things that are not the disciples' finest moments. And they demonstrate by, by their very actions and words, they weren't ready to really grasp what had happened on the, the Mount of Transfiguration. And yet through it, God had given his disciples just enough, a glimpse to tide them over when they would witness his suffering and death and know that he is the Savior that they need. So while Jesus told the disciples, hold off until you tell others, that isn't true of you and me. Because we know that Jesus is the Savior we need, and by extension, also the Savior that everybody else needs as well. And so we don't keep quiet about it. Now, it might be different if he was just the Savior we wanted. Then we may not be so inclined to share him with others because we wouldn't be so confident that they would share our wants, the same things that we want. In the same way that, that you wouldn't necessarily, without being asked, share with somebody else where your favorite pizza place was. You don't know if they want pizza or if they like pizza, but if somebody stops and asks you, hey, I've got a kid in the back of the car and I need to find the nearest restroom, where is it? You know that's a need and you're not going to withhold that information from them. Jesus isn't just the Savior that, that we want or other people may or may not want. He's the Savior that we all need. And so what do we do? We tell them about Jesus, the Savior we need, that that Savior that we need is the one that is proclaimed here every week. That that Savior that they need is the one who is woven in everything that the students in our school learn about every day. That that Savior that we need can't be found elsewhere in the world, but he's found right here in this place where we are constantly reminded not just to harp on our guilt and to focus on our sin, 
but to be reminded of it so that grace never grows old, so that we cling to it and grow in it and crave more of the grace that, that only Jesus, our Savior, can provide. So from here on during the season of Lent, marvel as we see how Jesus, the Savior we need, served as our substitute by his suffering and his sacrifice. And be reassured once again, through his words, through his actions, through his suffering and his death, that Jesus is the Savior we need. Amen.